You may have seen data saying hearing aid use is on the rise, but when today's guest took a deeper dive into some of those numbers, he saw a troubling story. Audiologist Nick Reed says some of the country's most vulnerable populations, hearing aid use is either stagnant or decreasing. We see a lot of studies saying hearing aid use is increasing in the United States, but it's clearly turning into some sort of divergent haves and have-nots. You know, the wealthy Americans and particularly white Americans and particularly men are seeing really big jumps. Today on ASHA Voices, who is using hearing aids and who is not? Also, we discuss what accessing hearing services might mean for patient health outcomes. I'm JD Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Get unlimited access to ASHA's catalog of CE courses for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. Nick Reed is an audiologist and a faculty member in the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Nick can draw a line from a difficult event in his personal life to the research he's producing today, research about hearing aids and patient health outcomes. I'll let Nick explain. It's where our conversation began. The story starts just a few years ago. Around 2017, 2018, a very, very close friend of mine who I went to college with and was one of my best friends, he had von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, which basic level is essentially, you know, he doesn't have, he didn't have tumor suppression. He had had many surgeries throughout the years, tumors in his lungs, brain tumors, but they started to become sort of uncontrollable as he hit his mid to late thirties. And at that time, multiple tumors had sort of interacted in different ways and caused a lot of stress on his body. And he ended up in the ICU and you know, we we drove basically overnight. He lived in Pittsburgh, and we just drove up Baltimore to Pittsburgh. We just jumped right in the car and went there. And he had been transferred back to a medical unit from ICU. And I actually knew already that he had tumors pressing into his auditory canal and causing some hearing loss. And, you know, this is somebody that mid to late 30s uh, and, you know, otherwise healthy and mentally sound and he's in the hospital and something was off and wrong. He was withdrawn. He was isolated. He didn't seem to be engaged. He was bringing up comments and saying things that didn't, didn't necessarily flow with the conversation. And, you know, at the time I didn't truly understand what was going on, but I sort of knew something was wrong. And I, I, you know, knew he had some hearing loss issues at the moment. And so we overnighted an amplifier to him. We put that amplifier on him and he sort of came back to us and very quickly, I sort of realized just through my minimal experience with this this kind of work at the time that, you know, Scott was going through very acute delirium, which we usually think of delirium as this sort of hyper delirium thing. The word brings up in our mind something like people ranting and raving or something like that. But in reality, the vast majority of delirium is like a hypo delirium. People are withdrawn. They're not engaged. They don't seem to understand what's going on necessarily. And we also know from research that, unfortunately, delirium experience, it's, it's very costly, it's very stressful on the body, and it, it leads to sort of an a unfortunate trajectory towards dementia, mortality, there's a cascade of negative outcomes. And what was special, though, is that at that moment, we saw him come back, and the rest of his life, basically the three months uh, after that experience, while he was in hospice, he wore that amplifier you know, every day. And 
this completely changed my entire idea of what I wanted to do. I basically ripped up my grants and rewrote them to study hearing loss and delirium and hearing loss and what we could do about you know healthcare outcomes. And from a big picture, the epidemiologic data, and then from a smaller picture, sort of the implementation science data of what we could do to address it. And a big, big aim of mine is to tie together that translational implementation work and not just be somebody preaching from a high level of these are the associations, but you know what can we do about it? And um, I think that really drives pretty much everything I do, to be honest with you. I'm sorry for you know your friend, and, and I'm glad that you're able to provide that amplifier at that time. You have the audiologist lens, but you also have the public health lens. What I'm wondering is, where are we seeing hearing loss show up in healthcare outcomes? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So sometimes when we connect two things in research, you know, people want to dig deep on like the mediators and well, how do they how do they become connected? And I have to be honest with you, when I present our research to people, they see the findings and they're like, yeah, that makes sense right away. I mean, you can talk to any geriatrician and they know a lot of their patients have hearing loss and they know they struggle to communicate and they understand how that could lead to these negative outcomes. You know, our work has been broad. We've looked at healthcare costs and we're not the first to look at healthcare costs. Um, the paper that we put out is it's over a 10-year period um, instead of a very short, you know, one-year, 18-month period. We've seen increases in 30-day readmission, so risk of being readmitted in 30 days, which is sort of a negative marker of healthcare. You shouldn't have left the hospital if you're going to come right back in for especially the same thing. The higher rates of hospitalization, we've done work showing that there's poor communication reported between providers and patients among those with hearing loss. We've done work showing people are less satisfied with care. I recognized what Nick was discussing from an article he wrote for Medical Care, a journal of the American Public Health Association. That article showed lower levels of patient satisfaction linked with unaddressed hearing loss. I asked Nick to elaborate about what he meant when he said a patient was less satisfied with care. You know, there's different ways to measure satisfaction. And, you know, satisfaction is, it's sort of a new thing, actually, in sort of healthcare in general. I mean, it's sort of sad to say this, but, you know, patient-centered outcomes and patient-reported outcomes are relatively recent. And we didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Now, in Medicare in particular, we link, we link reimbursement to satisfaction. And so it takes different forms. The paper that we're referring to, they ask a very broad question in the Medicare Current Beneficiary Survey, which is a panel survey of about 16,000 Medicare beneficiaries in the United States. And they ask them over the past year how satisfied you are with the quality of your care. When we dug deeper into that question and we looked at how hearing loss was associated with it after adding into our model race, age, gender, uh, income level, whether you had other insurances, chronic count of comorbidities, we included uh, dementia, uh, whether you reported any memory problems, uh, as well as number of activities of daily living that you needed assistance with. So when we built that model, hearing loss, having, having a lot of trouble hearing, um, and this is functional loss too, even if you had hearing aids, but you still reported having a lot of trouble hearing, those adults had almost 70% higher odds of saying that they were dissatisfied with care over the past year. 
that's a huge indictment on the system that this satisfaction with care, I can't even explain to you how rare that actually is. You know, when you look across the entire Medicare population and we look at that question in the entire 16,000 adults, it's less than like six or 5%, I think overall, say they're actually dissatisfied with care. It's rare. It's not something that you expect to see at all. What I think is an always important framing tier to think about this research is race is also associated with dissatisfaction with care. Uh, income levels, you know, chronic comorbidity counts, or uh, dementia, for example, or stroke. These are things, though, that are not necessarily immediately modifiable, right? But with hearing loss, what sort of excites me a little bit is that if we think the mediation there is communication in the healthcare setting, we can take Scott's example and we can give somebody an amplifier and do something about it at that moment in time. You know, that that's a real game changer, that it's something we can modify at bedside or at uh, physician desk side in an outpatient setting. We could address it. And if we can modify it in that moment in time and improve satisfaction, I mean, there's the implication that now we can improve care for everyone. There's also the implication that for the administrators that there's sort of an alignment of incentives that, you know, satisfaction with care is linked in Medicare to reimbursement tiers. And if you can improve satisfaction, you can increase your hospital's reimbursement rates with Medicare. So they're very motivated to do something about that. And you mentioned rehospitalization as well. Yeah, so we've we've shown some work with rehospitalization. 30-day readmission specifically, over a 10-year period, adults with hearing loss had 46% higher risk of a 30-day readmission. And 30-day readmission is sort of an indictment on the system, if you will. We are releasing somebody from care saying that, you know, we've, in theory, right, you know, not in reality, but in theory, we've fixed and treated the condition, right, and they should be stable. And for them to come back in, it could mean a lot of things, it could literally just mean that the person didn't understand their treatment, or you know, it could also mean they weren't they weren't treated effectively, or um, or we addressed a different problem than was actually the underlying problem, something like that. But you know, for me to see that high risk with adults with hearing loss, I think it does go back to the treatment understanding. And you can imagine if you're in the hospital setting and it's noisy, it's difficult to communicate, you know, you're stressed, and you have hearing loss, and you're struggling potentially to keep up with the conversation and you don't necessarily take it all in. Um, and that could lead to the poor treatment understanding and poor treatment adherence and then back in the hospital again. This ends up being sort of a vicious cycle because we have shown in models in the Medicare current beneficiary survey that adults with hearing loss have different help-seeking behaviors. And what I mean by that is they, they literally view the system differently. They say things like they're more likely to delay care. And, you know, we've put cost in our models and uh, and income levels. So we've we've pulled out some of these socioeconomic factors. They seem to have different attitudes about willingness to tell doctors about problems versus just in general telling friends about problems or or acquaintances or family. And to me, I think that this actually goes back to what we just talked about. If the system is sort of regularly, you know, failing you, you're coming back in with 30-day readmissions and you're not addressing your problems, even if it is this treatment adherence thing, but you may not realize that, you may start you may start to attribute that to the system. There's sort of a negative synergy happening where you might start to lose faith in the system. 
And you might be less likely to seek care in the future as you've had these bad experiences over and over again. And this this compounds, right? You had a bad experience, you become less likely to seek care in the future. And when you delay care, that's when you end up with these extremely costly and stressful preventable hospitalizations. These are things that, uh, you know, like diabetes, they should be managed in outpatient settings. And if you're hospitalized for your diabetes, primarily, that's a that's a huge, huge deal, and it's a ri- big problem. And um, you know, we actually have some data. We show that adults with hearing loss have about twenty percent higher odds of experiencing a preventable hospitalization in a given year. And again, that's a rare outcome. People don't experience preventable hospitalizations regularly. These are things that are meant to be managed on the outpatient side. And the reason that they've sort of become a a hot topic area in general is it's a huge, huge red flag that something is going wrong in this person's healthcare when we can't keep them out of the hospital for something that is manageable via outpatient. Yeah. So you've connected a lot of these health risks, these big issues, these red flags, and also the benefits, right, of addressing hearing loss. How can an audiologist try to address some of this unaddressed hearing loss to prevent these negative health outcomes? Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors at play here. We use the term unaddressed hearing loss a lot. And, you know, sometimes the thing to keep in mind is that some of these folks in these studies have hearing aids. An important consideration is that in the hospital setting, people don't bring their hearing aids always. They leave them at home. They're very expensive, and the hospital is a high-risk area to lose them. And so we've put people at risk. In fact, I've sort of suggested before that perhaps part of the data, the associations that we're seeing, is actually because we have adults coming in who have hearing aids normally in their everyday life. And then we take them away in the hospital. We lock them away, right? We, we treat them as inventory that we don't want to lose. And we just took away their primary means of communication or, or, or an aspect of their primary means of communication. And we've put them at a massive disadvantage compared to their everyday regular status quo. And it could exacerbate some of these issues. Nick points to another area he says needs improvement. When he was doing an externship at a hospital, he would run from room to room doing bedside evaluations. And Nick says this is a flawed way of meeting patients' needs. It's not effective from an implementation standpoint, he says, and instead suggests audiologists develop a more sustainable program that incorporates hospital staff nurses, for example, during the admissions process. I think it really is about audiology sharing their knowledge and using the their position as an expert to build programs that, you know, honestly removes them from the issue. Audiology as a field already doesn't have enough audiologists to address just the, the basic principle of what we do, delivering diagnostic and rehabilitative hearing care. We certainly don't have enough people to have uh, our folks running around the hospitals trying to do, you know, hearing loss, patient provider communication, mitigation programs. So if you can get outside of your box and build the sustainable pieces, working with other professions and aligning incentives so that they see a need for it, you know, that's that's going to make a huge, huge difference relative to doing it yourself. And then we also just need to figure out ways to get more people into hearing aids and you know, that's a whole nother issue of accessibility and affordability and stigma. And I mean, in general, that's that's a totally different can of worms. 
When we come back, we open that can of worms and discuss hearing aid access. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Earn ASHA CEUs and stay current with the ASHA Learning Pass by accessing ASHA's comprehensive catalog of CE courses for one convenient annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. Returning to our conversation with Nick Reed. Before the break, Nick mentioned the challenges associated with getting hearing aids to those who need them. I asked Nick about a very recent research letter he co-authored for JAMA Internal Medicine, a publication of the Journal of the American Medical Association. In the letter, Nick pulled data from a National Health and Aging Trends study looking at Medicare beneficiaries. The data looked at hearing aid use between 2011 and 2018. You can see the totals, but the data is also broken down for you to see what's happening with people who have specific characteristics. Black Americans, white Americans, male, female. And it also looks at income level. I asked Nick what he learned when going through the data. What I wanted to look at was you know, over that time period from 2011 to 2018, it's it's right around the same time period that we've had sort of this explosion of popular media covering hearing care under the umbrella of getting it to more people because of the links with cognitive decline, for example. You know, we actually see since that 2011 time period, Almost every single year, there's at least one big article in New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, one of the major newspapers in our country, covering the importance of hearing care and this link with cognitive decline. And so I sort of was asking the question to myself, has that changed anything? Did we see a change in hearing aid uptake? We looked at uh, 70 plus, and what we saw is that from that time period, the overall proportion of adults owning and using hearing aids, and using is a key word here. They, they do have to say that they're using them. It increased 23%. But when you dig deeper and start to break it down by different strata, you know, it's actually telling sort of a very um, troubling story, in my opinion. White men saw a 28.7% increase in hearing aid use. But black women, for example, they saw basically a 6% increase. White women saw the second highest change and then black men saw the third highest. So of those gender race strata, there's a real difference happening. But the strata that actually disturbed me the most over this period was when we looked by federal poverty line, people who were below the poverty line, they actually saw a decrease in hearing aid ownership of 13% over that time period. Whereas those at 200% or more above the poverty line saw a 30% increase. I think this speaks to there are hidden stories in the data that we don't always tell. We see a lot of studies saying hearing aid use is increasing in the United States, but it's clearly turning into some sort of divergent haves and have-nots. Wealthy Americans, and particularly white Americans, and particularly men, are seeing really big jumps, and they're driving the overall trend to say that, yeah, it looks good. We're selling more hearing aids. More people are wearing hearing aids. But some of our most vulnerable populations are either stagnant or decreasing. And the decrease in that the adults below federal poverty line, what worries me about it too is at that same time period, we saw more states on their Medicaid programs covering hearing care and in general, during this period, you have to remember this is the Affordable Care Act period, right? It is it is smack dab in the middle of this time period from 2011 to 2018. And 
we saw a ton of Medicaid expansion during that period. And so in theory, from a policy level, we are addressing that particular population. I mean, we are literally saying on paper, we're doing something. And (laughs) we saw the opposite effect. Things got worse. And to me, you know, I don't know exactly what this means, but to me, it suggests that the very delivery model is broken. We're saying that on paper, we're covering costs, but that didn't turn into more people owning hearing aids. It turned into less, which must mean that the delivery system, you know, the, the very idea of this traditional model of hearing care is not meeting the needs of everyone appropriately. Yeah, because if cost isn't the barrier, then what is it that's preventing people from getting their hearing loss addressed? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you can bring up stigma. I know and it's a very, you know, it's a very complicated issue. Help-seeking behaviors in general are complicated and stigma may be a part of it. But it would be hard for for me to accept that every single other category that we break down by is seeing an increase. So, do you think it must be another maybe systemic issue? I mean, do you think this is could it be transportation? Is it interaction with the healthcare? professionals? What's preventing the hearing loss from being addressed if it's not cost? Yeah, exactly. I think I, I actually have sort of always believed that cost is not the only barrier. We're, we're looking at people having to take time out of their day and, you know, come to multiple appointments to do something. And that is best practice. And that does have the best outcomes. We, you know, we know from research that that does really well, but not everybody has that kind of time and not everybody has that ability. And um, I think transportation is part of it. I think awareness is part of it. I think there's also just not always clinics that do this in areas where different people are living. You know, if we think about the geographic location of hearing care in the United States, I would wager a lot of the accessible sort of, you know, standalone clinics are in the suburbs. And they're probably, they're not in necessarily areas where poverty rates are higher. There's a distribution issue. So there's time, there's transportation, there's distribution, and there might also just be issues of sort of awareness. So in general, I think it stands to say that the the current model is not the end-all be-all, and we sort of need, you know, instead of being on one side of the fence or the other side, you know, we need a pyramid where you can sort of step your way up by having different entry points. And, you know, this is something I, I've been saying for a really long time, even before we published this piece, that... I think that this is where over-the-counter hearing aids sort of come in and direct-to-consumer hearing aids as sort of entry points of care. And and they just they just represent a different spot on that pyramid of care. The gold standard is still the gold standard, but we just need a better way, an escalator, if you will, to just get people on, to get them to the top of that pyramid eventually. You've shown where the disparities exist, and you've connected unaddressed hearing loss to poor health outcomes, or, or should I say worse health outcomes, things like rehospitalization. Do you think that reaching some of these populations with unaddressed hearing loss, whether that's folks below the poverty line, Black Americans, Black women in particular, do you think that that can start to prevent some of these health disparities that show up throughout the healthcare system. Yeah, I do. It's a it's a good way to think about it coming full circle, right? The ultimate evidence that we can show are that 
hearing aids do something beyond just addressing hearing loss, right? This is sort of a controversial topic even right now. We, we know that they address hearing loss, but we don't know that they help dementia. We don't know they help cognitive decline. We don't know that they help with healthcare spending and healthcare disparities. And I think that I think they do, to be honest with you. I think there's a lot of research that is right on the horizon. I guess it's good to, to, to sort of stop and explain that, you know, we can't just look at the data we currently have, right? Some, a lot of people say, well, why can't you just uh, show us in publications that adults that currently have hearing aids are doing better than adults that don't? And, you know, I will push back on that and say, hearing aid use is so strongly correlated with higher education level, with higher income with various other socioeconomic status and demographic factors. Those same factors are also protective of outcomes like high Medicare spending, for example, or cognitive decline. You can be the greatest statistician in the world, and you can't tease apart those strong correlations within your studies. I know we use words like adjust for and control for in models, but quite frankly, we don't control for anything in real-world data. We do our best, and it, it helps a little bit, but you can't truly tease it apart. So, you know, bad data in, bad data out, bad conclusions that you make. We need strong studies that meet gold standard. Nick told me about more of the research he's working on, including a study that compares groups of people with hearing loss who get hearing aids with groups of people with hearing loss who don't get hearing aids. He says what he sees is a difference in spending over time. What we have found is that, you know, it's not a massive number, but year over year, we see something like a $300 savings attributable to getting hearing aids. And that that could be exponential over time, um, in which case it would... Uh, it would suggest that hearing aids would pay for themselves. But that kind of work is is sort of, I find to be super exciting. It's really just thinking uh, cross-pollination of science and using using methods that aren't usually used in audiology, epidemiology studies, but using those. And we do, we do see some really interesting findings. Nick Reed, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. On today's episode, we talked about healthcare disparities. Nick's research shows that Black Americans were not seeing the same growth in hearing aid use that white Americans saw over the same time period. Next week on the podcast, we're joined by two guests to discuss ways to better serve diverse clients and interrupt implicit racial bias in audiology. It's all about relationship building. So taking the time to greet the patient, taking the time to ask them questions about their personal lives, perhaps details that you may have learned from interactions before. Find that in your podcast feed or on our website at leader.pubs.asha.org. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Access ASHA CE content for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. Production assistance comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. <laughs>